Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont. If you're in our area, we wanted to let you know that we have community groups starting back again in September. So check out that and other ministries we have going on here at newkingchurch.com. Led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys can have a seat. Well, um, my name is Ben. If, if I don't know you yet, welcome I'm just coming back from a two-week vacation, and so feeling really rested and, and just had an awesome time with my family, but really glad also to be back and have the opportunity to preach the Word this morning. This is a passage of Scripture that um, I love personally. I, this, this verse in here about living from, by every word that comes from the mouth of God is one of my favorite verses of all time. Um, and so what we're going to learn today is we're going to learn what happens when Jesus is tested, when he is uh, tried. And like, like probably a lot of you, I've gone through um, some new tests in the past few months. 2020 has been a, in a harder year than most, and, um, and I have felt myself being squeezed in a lot of different ways that I never have been squeezed before. Uh, a, f- a few months ago, when the um, coronavirus was a little bit newer, uh, but we were starting to be allowed to get, get out and like see other people. Um, the stress of things had really been building in me, and I just was not really aware of all the ways that it was affecting me. I was following the news way too closely. I was, you know, uh, online way too much, keeping up with everything, not being very uh, discerning about what all I was allowing into my head. And there came this, this uh, evening where our family was I'm going to get to go and be with some friends. And so Tiffany cooked cookies, and we loaded up the car. We have five kids, and load up the car, and we're waiting in the car for Tiffany. And um, I told the kids to put on their seatbelts. And this plate of cookies is sitting on the middle console. And I was sitting there just waiting, and all of a sudden, a foot comes from behind and knocks this plate of cookies. And I'm, I'm trying to catch the plate of cookies, and I turn around, and I what are you doing? And my son Daniel is like down in the floorboard 
And he turns around, and he looks at me with these, like, puppy dog eyes, and he holds up this sandwich. And my one-and-a-half-year-old had thrown her sandwich down on the ground, and he was just getting down on the ground to try and help her out and keep her happy and give her her sandwich back. And just right then in that moment, you know, I saw myself. I saw myself a little clearer. I saw what was inside me getting squeezed out in that moment. And this is a reality none of us can escape. When we are tested, when we go through hard things, and there are much bigger tests than a cookie, you know, cookie plate getting kicked, but when we go through hard things or hard seasons or we're, we're isolated or we're, um, or we're sick or we go without a job or we are having a real struggle in our home life or in our family or when we go through difficult times, we get squeezed, right? The pressures build into a boiling point and whatever is inside of us will come out in that moment. The Bible says that out of our own hearts come the evil things that we do. Jesus said this in Mark 7, 21 through 22. He said, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Jesus also said that out of the heart the mouth speaks. In other words, your mouth is kind of like a, a pressure valve for your heart. And so when I turned around and said, what are you doing? And I snapped like that. Well, that didn't just come out of, that didn't originate in my mouth. That originated in my heart. That was the pressure relief valve letting something out. And so I could see what was inside me in that moment. And maybe if you think about it, You've seen what's inside you come out recently. Maybe after a night or two of little sleep or because things have gotten stressful at work or because somebody said something to you, a family member, a coworker. Maybe it's just all of the, the stuff that's happening in our world that's just pressing down on you. And you feel like with the election cycle about to be here and this coronavirus still going on and things that are happening in our economy and in our world that you just feel like, man, I have just been stressed to the max. What we're going to look at today is we're going to see Jesus under pressure. We're going to see what happens when you squeeze Jesus. We're going to see what happens in his moment of testing. And um, we're going to be encouraged by who he is. We're going to get to know him better, but we're also going to learn how we should respond in our tests. So pray with me and we'll, we'll jump into it. Father, um, thank you for your, your presence here with us this morning. Thank you for every soul here, God, that is, is here on purpose, intentionally. There's not, there are no accidents. And God, I, I thank you for, um, for the ways that you want to work and have been working in our lives up until this moment. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do 
uh, a great and lasting work in us right now. I pray that, that distractions would be out of the way, that you would just get our attention right now, get our focus and get our worship um, so that you can be glorified. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to set the stage for this passage so that you can see how truly epic it is. Because it's easy just to, to read this without the full context of what's been happening in the whole of the Bible. This is all one big story from beginning to end. And it, it's easy just to, to open up a passage and read it and miss really the drama that's there. So, so let me set the stage for us a little bit. Um, we need to remember that at the beginning of the story of the Bible, God creates human beings, Adam and Eve. They're perfect without sin. He puts them in a garden. He, uh, life is good. And along comes this serpent. And this serpent comes in whispering lies, deceit, and convinces Adam and Eve to listen to his voice rather than God's. And they... They believe the serpent, they listen to the serpent, they act on what they hear, and there is devastation because of it. Sin enters into the world. They've, human beings chose a side in the garden. You see, you had God and his kingdom, and then you have Satan and his domain, the domain of darkness, and in their rebellion, they, they chose sides. They joined a rebellion that was begun by Satan. And so devastation ensues, and we, we see just calamity after calamity after calamity of, in human history. But the, the Bible is also telling a story of a pursuit, that God isn't leaving humanity on their own, that He's coming after them, that He has a plan, a rescue plan. And we get little glimpses of what that's going to look like as we read, there's going to be this Messiah who's going to come. Who's going who's gonna to save his people? And then imagine that you're, you're sitting down, you're reading this whole story through, and you get to the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. And now all of a sudden, this man comes on the scene. You're reading in Matthew and chapter 1, and, and it's talking about this, this, uh, this whole lineage, this whole, all these descendants that led up to Jesus. And then there's angels that give this promise to Mary and to Joseph. Joseph has this dream. This angel says, Mary's, yeah, she's a virgin, but she's, she's going to have a son. And he's going to save his people from their sins. And so you go, whoa, here, here he comes. The one that we've been waiting for. And then you get to Matthew chapter 2, and you find out he's going to be the king of Israel. And there are the nations are gathering to him to worship at his feet. This is not just a promised Messiah for Israel, but a promised Messiah for the nations. And then there's this, there's this king, this earthly ruler, Herod, who, who wants to destroy him before he can ever rise up. But God protects his anointed. And then we get to Matthew chapter 3, and there's this prophet who comes on the scene, John the Baptist, and he comes preaching this, this, these sermons about repentance, that the, that the Messiah, the long-awaited one, has come, and now you need to prepare your heart for him. You need to turn from your sins and make, your, make way for the Lord. 
And then John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And it's like his inauguration ceremony. And Jesus, when he's coming up out of the water, the heavens are opened to him. And the Spirit of God comes down and descends and rests on him, anointing him for service. And there's a voice from heaven that says, Behold, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so here he is. This is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. And then you get to chapter 4. And wait a second. He doesn't go out and begin gathering followers. The very first thing this Jesus does is it says the Spirit leads him into the wilderness for a test. What is this about? And you realize, oh, he's going out there to face the serpent. He's going out there to face the one that started this whole mess in the first place. Very first thing, we see Jesus, this new kind of man, the God-man, stepping onto the scene. And we see him facing the same test that Adam faced in the garden thousands of years before and failed. But Jesus conquers. Jesus conquers where Adam failed. But I can just imagine as this is all unfolding, as Jesus is walking out there, I can just imagine all of heaven, the angels who've been watching this whole story unfold. I can imagine them watching in tension, waiting and seeing what's going to happen because it's important that we understand this. Everything hinges on this. If Jesus fails, it's over. It's over. There is no substitution. There is no death on the cross. There is no salvation for his people if he sins, if he fails. That's the stage that we have set as we read Matthew chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You know, a lot of times when we go through trials and tests, we make the mistake of thinking that we have somehow gotten out of God's will for our lives. And to be sure, there are times when that can happen, where we, we walk away from what God has told us to do. We walk away from God's will, and we encounter th- roadblocks and disciplines from the Lord to redirect our paths, sure. But oftentimes, when we read through the stories of the Bible, here's what we find. Not every person going through a trial is going through that trial because they're not in God's will. In fact, many times, many times, Those who are dead center in the middle of God's will are led right into a storm. Jesus led his disciples right into the middle of a storm on the Sea of Galilee. The Spirit of God right here leads Jesus right into a test. And he is exactly where he's supposed to be. And so just because you're going through some hard things, just because you're in the middle of a trial does not mean that you have necessarily walked away from God or that you're not 
exactly where God wants you to be right now. So what is the Spirit doing in this? Yes, it's to show that where Adam failed, Jesus conquers. He's the new man. In every way that we have failed, he conquers. But it's also to show, not just Adam, that he's the new and better Adam, but he's also, in every way that Israel failed, Jesus is going to conquer. Check out the parallels here between Jesus and Israel. So Israel, right after they have been freed from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt, this is the story where Moses holds up his staff, the Red Sea parts, they go through the Red Sea, the Egyptian army follows them, and the waters crash down. Well, that is referred to in Scripture as going through the waters of baptism. That's like representative of Israel's baptism. And immediately after Israel passes through the waters of baptism, what, what happens next? Where does God lead them next? Into the wilderness. And so listen to this, what it says in Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3. Listen to these similarities. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Sound familiar? So Jesus, immediately after passing through the waters of baptism, is led by the Spirit where? To the wilderness. For how long? 40 days. To do what? To be tested. And what's his first test? Hunger. For what purpose? So that he might know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what do we learn from this test of his? We learn what was in the heart of Jesus. It says, testing you to know what was in your heart. Without the test, you don't know what's inside you. Without the, the plate of cookies getting kicked. Without your boss giving you that cutting remark without the sickness, without that family member causing that problem. You don't know what's inside you until you're tested. Two people can look morally the same until they're tested, and then we see what's really there. So let's see what's in the heart of Jesus by looking at this temptation in the wilderness. Matthew 4, follow along or listen carefully. Matthew 4, verses 3 through 11. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God. Now, 
just pause for a moment. If you are the Son of God, what did the Father just say to him at his baptism? This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. And this is where the enemy comes to attack, at the place of identity. The Father knows my Son needs affirmation as He goes into His ministry. He needs to know He is mine. He is loved. I approve of Him. And the enemy knows if I can get at His identity, I've got Him. And here's the thing about Satan and his schemes. He doesn't come up with new ones. He just keeps repeating the same old ones. That's why the Bible says we're not ignorant of his schemes. So in the ways that Satan has attacked in the past, he continues. And so he comes at us. If you're a believer, listen, the Bible says if you're a Christian, that your identity is rooted in Jesus. It means that you're adopted, that you are loved by the Father, that you are approved by Him. This is your identity. And Satan will come in and he will try to get you to think that you're all alone, that God is not with you, that you're the only one, that you're somehow an exception get you to question that the Father really loves you. So he tempts him. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So Jesus is pretty hungry after 40 days, right? But he's relying on the Father. He's trusting the Father. He's not, he's not making his own meals out here. And so he tempts him. Here's the squeeze. And how does he respond? What comes out when Jesus is squeezed? And he answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8.3 What's Jesus been feeding on for these 40 days in the wilderness? What's he been eating? How has he been sustained? And what sustained him every day of his existence? The Word of God. The Word of God is your sustenance. The, the Bible is telling us right here that you need the Word more than you need food. The Word of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you are the Son of God, there it is again, throw yourself down, for it is written. Now Satan's going to twist some scriptures. He still does this too. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so the tempter squeezes. What comes out of Jesus? Again, it is written. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 16. All three of these quotes are from the book of Deuteronomy. 
I mean, is anybody, is anybody else like blown away by that, that Jesus' go-to book when it comes to fighting off Satan is Deuteronomy? I love it. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, did you notice in all of this, Jesus, the only thing that he says to Satan the whole time is, one time he says, be gone, Satan. He says, it is written three times. And then he says, Scripture. That's it. That's all that he says the whole time. Why is it that Satan chooses these particular temptations? Well, I think there's multiple reasons, but one is this. Jesus talked about throughout the, the gospel of John that he never did anything in his own authority, but he, whatever the Father told him to do, he did. Whatever the Father spoke, he spoke. He didn't do things of his own initiative, of his own plan. He was following and submitting to the Father. And so part of what Satan is doing here is he's trying to get Jesus to shortcut the Father. He's trying to get Jesus to take some initiative and do it on his own, his own way, and listen to the voice of the serpent. So don't wait. Don't wait until you get back to some food. Go ahead. Command these stones. Make bread. He could have done that. Jesus could have done that. When he tells him to jump off of the temple, He's, he's at the highest point. It would have been about a 300-foot drop, probably, depending on where he was sitting. Um, and he's a very public place. What he's trying to do is get Jesus to do a massive public miracle. You see, if he would have done that, then crowds would have flocked immediately to him. And so he's saying, look, do this publicly. Gain a huge following. Don't, don't go the way that the Father's wanting, where you make one disciple at a time. Do this thing, and then everyone will know you're the Messiah. And then the last one, he's basically, Satan is described as the God of this world, lowercase g. He's got authority on the earth. Satan does. And so what he's telling Jesus is, look, don't, don't go the way of suffering and death. If you bow down to me right now, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth and all their glory. When, when Jesus has risen from the dead and he's standing before his disciples, before he ascends into heaven, he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Jesus got the kingdoms in their glory and he did it the Father's way. Satan's trying to get him to take a shortcut, to take initiative, to do it his way and not to wait on the Father. Now, don't forget the context here, okay? This is Jesus standing toe-to-toe with our most powerful and greatest enemy, Satan. 
the greatest enemy to mankind. And Jesus has to come out on top here. He has to. If he listens to the voice of the serpent, if he fails here, it's over. All is lost. And he never sins. Not only here, but for the rest of his life, for all of his life, Jesus never sinned. The book of Hebrews says he was tempted in every way as we are, and yet he never sinned. So how? How does Jesus do this? How does he do what no other human being in all of human history has been able to do? Does he get into a conversation with the devil and argue his way out of it? Now, keep in mind, Jesus is the most brilliant man on earth. His intelligence cannot be matched. Every single opponent that comes to him and tries to twist him up in his words and trip him up walks away with their mouth shut. He's brilliant. Does he rely on his powers of reasoning and debate? No. What about prayer? I mean, Jesus has got the most powerful prayer life of any human being, and he's been praying and fasting 40 days. Does he stop and simply pray and close his eyes and say, Father, would you just come bring angels here to fight for me? No. I'm sure he probably prayed throughout this, but that's not what he leans on. That's not what we're shown. What about his experiences? Elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Does he bring that up? Does he say, you know, I know who you are, and I've seen your fall, and I know your fate? No, doesn't. What about when he's tempted with, if you are the Son of God, does he go back to his experience at baptism and say, of course I'm the Son of God. Did you not hear the voice from heaven? I remember that. I had this incredible experience. No. He doesn't rely on his powers of reasoning and debate. He doesn't rely on prayer alone, and he doesn't rely on his experience. As important as those things were. What he does here, when faced with the test that everything else is going to hinge on, is he says, it is written. That's what he says. He quotes memory verses from Deuteronomy. So just to recap so we can understand here, Jesus is the Son of God. He's been anointed with the Holy Spirit. He's been affirmed in His identity by His Father. He's been praying and fasting for 40 days to prepare for this. And still, when facing the devil, He pulls out the weapon of the Word of God to defeat Him. I mean, at first, when I read this, I just was astonished by this because it seems like Jesus could just say, Go away. But even when he tells him to be gone, he says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written. Even his command to make him leave is rooted in the authority of the word. He, he leans on the word stored up in his heart. 
Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up, some translations say, treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have stored up your word in my heart. Sin is deadly. So you've got this deadly enemy, Satan, the enemy of humanity who seeks to destroy us. You've got sin, this powerful force that comes in and destroys us. And how does Jesus stand up against it? What does the Bible say we do to stand up against this force called sin? I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So memorizing Scripture is one way of keeping us from sin. I think the reason that this kind of shocks us at first, that this is how Jesus does battle with Satan, is that we don't understand how powerful the Word of God is. In some ways, even though we might know some of the Scriptures around this, we still look at this as just a book. But it is so powerful. It is so authoritative. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's alive, this book. It is not just a dead book. Sharper than any two-edged sword, Ephesians 6.17 calls it the sword of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit uses a weapon, what does He use? The Word of God. It is our offensive weapon in the battle against our enemy. And make no mistake, we have this same enemy. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. You say, that sounds like strong language. Well, it is. Look at the world around us. If you don't believe in a devil... There there is a true being behind the evil, the wickedness that we see in our world. And he seeks to destroy every single one of us. And the way he does it, and the way he's done it from the very beginning, is through lies, through deceit. Jesus called him the father of lies. He invented lying. And when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. Every word that comes out of his mouth is deceit. And the way you defeat deceit is through truth. And the Word of God is truth. This is how this roaring lion devours his victims. He comes in, he speaks a lie, you believe it, and that lie ensnares you in sin. So he comes to me and he comes to you and he whispers, say something with your coworker about the way your boss has been acting. It'll feel better to get it off your chest. Or talk about your friend, you know, with your other friend. Hadn't he been being ridiculous? Or you should watch that movie. It's, yeah, it's got some nudity in it, but it's just, a, I mean, it's just a movie. It's not real. Or you could escape all this stress and go out and get a few drinks and nobody will know. Or you could escape all this stress and go to that website and nobody will know. 
Or you could escape all this stress and binge watch Netflix for the whole day. Nobody would know. Or you could go buy some stuff. That'll help you feel better. Or you should sleep with that person. No, I mean, everybody does it. Or as simple as don't worry about reading your Bible today. I mean, there's grace for that. Don't worry about praying. That's, there's grace for that. This isn't, and the next thing you know, you're, you're drifting away from God. At the moment of temptation, you have a choice. Either you resist the devil or you allow him to ensnare you. So how do we fight against the lies the same way that Jesus did? By storing up the Word of God in our hearts and then bringing those truths out in the moment of temptation. But before we can ever bring those truths out, we've got to do the work beforehand. Here's the thing about this that that was hitting me as I was reading this. Jesus, I believe, just like we do, I think he had to memorize this stuff. I don't think he just got a download as an infant. I think he had to do the hard work of Scripture memorization. Just like we do. And if we wait until the moment of temptation, until the moment we're squeezed, it's probably too late most of the time. Most of the time, you don't have time to run to your Bible and open it up and be like, yeah, but this says that God desires that... You don't have time for that. When the, when the cookie plate gets kicked, it just comes out. Whatever you've been putting in. That's the way it usually happens. And so Jesus had done the hard work of storing up God's word in his heart so that when the pressure was on, it came out. Um, so here's the basic takeaway for us today. I just want to challenge you, if you're not memorizing Scripture, to start memorizing Bible verses. You don't have to start with anything big. You can start small. Some of us on the leadership team have decided recently, we've been convicted about this, and we're, st- we're, we're trying to memorize Colossians, but we're just doing it a verse at a, at a time. And it's, it's probably going to take a while, because I'm, I'm not good at this. I'm like eight verses in, and it's hard. Little bits at a time. It doesn't, you don't have to do this in a way that's intimidating. And you don't have to memorize whole big passages like that. You can memorize promises that are tailored for your specific areas of temptation. So let's say you're, you're tempted with stinginess. You can memorize the scripture so you can say, it is written, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Or let's say you're your temptation is anxiety. You worry and you worry and you worry. So you can memorize Matthew six twenty seven, where Jesus says, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to a span of his life? Or maybe your temptation is lust and you can memorize 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 that says, it, you can say, it is written, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Or maybe... You're tempted with materialism, and you can memorize Luke 12, 15, and you can say, it is written, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Or maybe it's pride. 
It is written, he must increase and I must decrease. John 3.30. Or laziness. It is written, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Colossians 3.23. You get the idea. When Peter said to resist the devil, James said the same thing, resist the devil and he will flee from you. When they said this, this is what they have in mind. They're thinking about how Jesus resisted the devil. They're not thinking that the way we resist the devil is just by going, I don't hear you right now, I don't hear you right now. They don't don't have in mind that you just avoid hard situations. While, While that's very important that we don't walk into temptation knowingly. They don't just have in mind that you pray while that is so important that you pray when you are tempted. They have this in mind, that you resist the devil the same way that Jesus resisted the devil. So, what about when we fail? Here's the good news for us. Because we will fail, we do fail, even if we're trying to do this well, we will fail. And the good news for us is that Jesus, our substitute, He did it. He did it for us. He overcame by the word of God. And the Bible says the good news is this. The reason that Jesus came and lived a sinless life and died on a cross and was buried and on the third day rose from the grave is so that we who put our faith in him, our trust in him, can be credited with his perfect life. So that we can, by faith, be forgiven of our sins, of our shortcomings. And so, when we do fail, when we do fall short, and we will, Jesus makes up for our lack. And whenever the enemy comes and he whispers and we listen to the voice of Satan and we go astray, we can remember, we can come back to Jesus and say, thank you, Jesus, that you never sinned, that you never believed the lies of the enemy, that you obeyed perfectly on my behalf. He filled his mind and his heart with scriptures so that when he was tempted, he had exactly what he needed to fight for holiness. He fed on the word of God. He lived on every word that came from the mouth of God. And it kept him holy in every trial. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And God, I pray for this church. God, I pray that you would make us a people who, when we are squeezed, your word comes spilling out of us. I pray that you would make us a people who love your word, treasure your word, store it up in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. Lord Jesus, you said, you prayed for us, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. I pray that we would be sanctified in the truth, that we would believe your word to be true, that we would recognize the deceitful lies of the enemy that come to us in the form of our own thoughts, that come to us in the form of media and friends and the, the, the world around us, that you would make us a discerning people, a holy people who live by every word that comes from your mouth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.